Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter with host Brooke Benson. Over the next hour, you'll learn from experienced professionals the options you have to make smart decisions in your own divorce journey. Now, here is your host. Hi there, my name is Brooke Benson. Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter. I saw a wedding planning magazine and realized people need the same kind of guide for getting unmarried. I don't advocate for divorce. In fact, I don't even get involved in relationship issues at all. If you decide to end a relationship or your partner does, I'm here to help with sensible, practical, and often low-cost ways to prepare for the split. Only when you know what you want can you work towards your own best outcomes. And there are many professions with specialties in the area of divorce. This show is dedicated to hearing from them, compiling some of their best information, and incorporating it into my workbook by the same name, now available for download at planfordivorce.org. Please follow me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Today, we are very fortunate to hear from two women with lots of experience on this topic. My first guest is Grace Rubio. She started Rubio Digital Forensics in December 2018 after having worked for a different computer forensic firm for almost 10 years. She earned a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical and computer engineering from Worcester Polytechnic Institute and began her career at, as a computer forensic investigator. So after 19 years of experience in operating systems and application support, she started her own company, Rubio Digital Forensics, to assist clients in retrieving and analyzing electronic evidence in cases involving theft of intellectual property, theft of trade secrets, breach of contract, hidden assets, child custody matters, electronic tracking, securities and exchange commission investigations, and all kinds of other super, super serious stuff. So Grace, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me to the show. Tell us just a little bit about how you got started in this industry in particular. It's gotten so much recent press, um, but I am just curious to know why a woman who obviously has lots of choices, what, what, what led you to this? Honestly, it was an accident. Um, when I finished college, I had been planning on working in medical device research and development and Obamacare was going through Congress. And so nobody was hiring. This was in the middle of the Great Recession. And so I moved back home to Dallas and I said, OK, let me try to find some tech support jobs just to get out of the house. And I came across a job listing that said computer forensic investigator. And I said, hey, that sounds cool. I've got the background for that. And they had about 100 applicants, only interviewed me. I got the job the same day, and I was with them until they closed in December of 2018, and I ended up purchasing the assets and starting my own company. Wow. So That's an amazing story. Good for you. 
Definitely so t- back to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes, and, and, you know, here we are talking in the context of divorce. Sometimes life doesn't go the way you think it's going to. So you're actually kind of the poster child for my mission, which is, you know, do what you can, use what you got squeeze lemons and make lemonade. So I'm thrilled for you. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you do as a digital forensic examiner. So we preserve anything related to electronically stored information and then analyze it. Electronically stored information can be your cell phone. It can be found on your computer, your iPad, your tablets, servers, It could also be your online accounts. So your online email accounts, your Gmail, your Hotmail, if anybody's still using those, Um, your Facebook, your social media accounts, your Facebook, your Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. We can obtain data from all those sources um, and then analyze it for whatever you may need in that case and then present it to the attorney who's engaged us in that matter or in the end, we may be going to court and testifying in court about our findings. Okay. So how do you typically get a client? What Just walk us through how you get connected with someone who has a need for this data. So typically attorneys have um, heard of me from either other attorneys or have seen me in court or have worked with me in the past. And then Um, If they have a case that they need to preserve electronically stored information or obtain data off of a device such as a computer or phone, they'll go ahead and contact me. So you open your investigation. Does the person you're investigating, are they aware of what you're doing? It depends on the situation. Um, In Texas, if say, for example, in in this type of divorce situation, typically I will not look at another um, spouse's computer unless it was a family computer, okay? A family computer that has no password that both spouses were using, the children may have been using, it was open for everybody, okay? If that spouse had a password on their specific account, we're not going to go look at that data until we have a court order or consent. We may preserve the device to ensure that nothing's tampered with, but we're not going to go look through it until we have a court order or consent. So is that person who's who owns the account, if they went in and let's say tried to delete a whole bunch of stuff, would you be aware of that? On a computer system? Mm-hmm. On a computer system, we can find evidence typically that that there had been data once there. We may not be able to recover it. We may be able to recover it. We just don't know until we get in there. Um, But typically we can find evidence that it once existed. And so once you have evidence and you present it to the attorney, how much of that is actually court admissible? Um, Well, we follow everything as far as chain of custody in order to ensure that everything is admissible. Those are legal questions that I leave up to the attorneys to answer. Uh, right. What can and can't be used. But we make sure that everything is documented with proper chain of custody, that we have the proper authority to examine a device um, before we actually examine that device. 
Gotcha. And then do you yourself go to court to talk about what the process has been and, and what you've uncovered? Oh, absolutely. I've Tell us, have you, have you testified in actual divorce cases? Oh, yes. Yes. So t- tell us just kind of, I mean, obviously without any sort of revealing information, but tell us how how your work is brought into, let's just say, a hearing, you know, for someone who's seeking a divorce. So a lot of the, the types of cases I'm brought in to for family law deal with either um, hidden assets or child custody issues. Um, so if we're looking at child custody issues, I've had cases where um, the spouse that brought me in, or I may even be appointed as a neutral to work on the case, and the court needs to know, well, what is mom or what is dad looking at when they have possession of the child? Are they accessing the computer when they should be watching the children? Are they looking at inappropriate material when they should be watching and monitoring the children. Um, Unfortunately, that has happened. Um, And it could even be not on mom and dad's device. It could be on one of the children's devices. I've had several cases where um, the parent actually had an iOS device and then set up their iCloud account on a child's iPad and that device has synced or that data has synced from mom's device or dad's device to the child's device. And so has now made uh, data that shouldn't be available to children, such as pornography usage or um, sexting photographs or inappropriate material for children is now showing up on the child's device. Wow. That's a real case that happened. I've had about five of those cases. Oh my goodness. A few years. So that just shows how little some of us understand about the cloud and about syncing. But I could understand why maybe the parent who is looking at that sort of thing doesn't want it connected specifically to their login. But what a terrifying situation. Um, and then the kids are now exposed to it, which is very scary because if it showed like I have one case where it showed up in the bookmarks and so the bookmarks synced from one parent's account or device to the two children's devices and so if the children were to go to the bookmarks and click on one of the links in the bookmarks then they could actually be accessing pornography on their own devices which is illegal I mean that setting that up for a minor would be I think illegal in most states. When you said that you get sometimes appointed as a neutral, what is the process in that? Is it the judge that appoints you? Uh, Typically it's either an agreement between the attorneys to have a neutral expert. Um, So I've had cases where both attorneys work for firms that I've do business with. um, And so they typically will try to have retain me, as soon as they think that they're going to need me. Um, and at times they'll just say, okay, well, can we just hire Rubio Digital Forensics as a neutral and agree that facts are facts and whatever Miss Rubio has to say, or we agree that we can trust her to to produce or, or properly disclose the evidence to us. Sure. Uh, so it could either be a Rule 11 agreement in Texas courts or 
um, sometimes they'll go to the judge and say, okay, we like these few experts. Your Honor, please appoint somebody to be the neutral if there's disagreements between two experts. Um, it really just depends. But I have been appointed even in criminal cases to work for um, defendants where the court has appointed me to work for indigent defendants and then the state has paid my bill through through that situation. Wow. Okay. That's a, uh, I mean, I, every time someone talks about digital information or social media apps, I, I keep thinking about when I was, you know, raising my children and that concept that even if you delete it, it may still be out there somewhere, or there is a record out there somewhere. Can you confirm that what I've been saying to the kids is actually the case? There will always be traces to the fact that it was out there at some point. And if, especially on the internet, there are ways to retrieve information on the internet from the archive machine, the Wayback machine, to just looking at internet history on somebody's computer of whatever may be recoverable. Um, so there's always traces. There are yeah. always traces. I am. Um... It, it's a world that I'm just not familiar with. And it always kind of reminds me that, you know, for absolutely for online activities, you know, we all need to just be minding our own business, <laughs> you know, staying out of trouble. So be talk a little with what you post. <laughs> yes. Be very careful with what you post. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, don't post anything you would feel uncomfortable about your grandmother viewing what I always kind of told the kids. I, I think a lot of, from what I've seen, a lot of family attorneys will say, don't put something in writing that you wouldn't be embarrassed to see in front of the court, right? in front of a judge and having a judge read. And uh, you should definitely take that into account with anything that you post online. Okay. Really good information, really good information, really for all of us. Let's talk a little bit about hidden assets. So I imagine that uh, you work pretty closely with uh, CPAs who are looking back through financial records. Is that the case? Uh, either CPAs or forensic accountants. Uh, okay. So would, would those people also be in a position to hire you for a case? Um, we may not get hired on to like to where they hire me, what typically happens is that um, forensic accountants will call me to join them on the case. And so then we'll still get engaged by the attorney, but then we're working together with the forensic accountants to look for information. Okay. And what kind of information typically turns up? I mean, the thing, someone like me who really is not very well versed in this topic in particular, I always think about like offshore accounts or things like that, some sort of, you know, in the Dominican Republic, you know, nest egg that they're contributing to. What kinds of examples are there in terms of hidden assets that you uncover in an investigation? Well, there could be hidden accounts or unknown accounts, both in the US and abroad, whether in Switzerland or Grand Cayman. There could be crypto accounts, cryptocurrency accounts that are now becoming popular again. Um, so you may need to have somebody who's well-versed in cryptocurrency. In addition to a forensic accountant, you need, may need somebody who, who handles 
cryptocurrency exclusively. Um, you may find records on computer systems related to financial documents or bank statements or other credit cards that you didn't know about. And we just pull those records and then turn them over to the forensic accountant that's been involved. So that way they can do the proper tra tracking and tracing uh, through all the financial activities. Okay. Wow. All right. So give us an example um, of a case where you uncovered hidden assets and how that affected the outcome of the case. Well, I mean, I had a case, this was probably about eight or 10 years ago, where we found that there were bank accounts in Germany and Switzerland and found that multiple bank accounts were being accessed uh, online. And I provided those to counsel and then um, he was able to issue subpoenas or do whatever he needed to do and use the records we were able to find and then use those in the court proceeding. I don't know what happened with those findings because I just found the fact that they somebody was logging into these accounts, but counsel has to go take the next step and file subpoenas and issue document requests for these accounts. Okay. I can't just go online and retrieve them for somebody. Okay. What about a device that you think, or maybe even the owner of it thinks is, you know, quote unquote dead. Um, maybe it's outmoded. Uh, and said so they think, oh, well, there's no way they're going to get to that because it's, you know, we're in the latest generation of that device. Is that, is that for sure it's just dead and gone or are there ways you can access it? There are ways we can access it. There are so many ways we can access it. It, I've had phones that have been in car accidents that have been run over and we have been able to repair the devices and get them. They're not fully functional, but they're functioning enough to where we can get the data off of them. Um, I wouldn't go use the phone after that, but at least we can get the data off. So we, we can recover and put things back together on many devices, maybe not everything, but just because somebody says it's dead doesn't mean it's dead. So what is your time frame for finding something? Like, let's say the telephone that was run over in the car accident, it's provided to you. And roughly how long does it take for you to be able to access the data and organize it in a way that the attorney could then take a look at it? It really depends on the phone, the type of phone, the operating system, um, the level of damage. I mean, I've had one phone that was in a severe accident um, and that phone, there's no way to repair it. Absolutely no way to repair it whatsoever. Um, and then I've had another three phones come in about a month ago and within about two or three weeks, I was able to get the phones functioning enough into a state that we could retrieve the data. And that was probably within two or three weeks and that was with me having to order parts. Parts I for guess. the phones? Uh-huh. Wow. So you can do that too? Yes. My my electrical engineering background definitely helps with that. <laughs> I guess so. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about that. So you understand not only the implications of what data has been recovered, but you really can go in and figure out how to retrieve it based on that engineering experience. Correct. I can actually figure out using my reverse engineering skills, uh, 
how the data came to be put onto the device, what activities were likely used or, or what the sequence of events were that allowed that data to appear on that device. So take, for example, um, I had a case recently where we found data that had been synced to an iPad and um, the other spouse swore up and down, no, I did not go change the settings on the iCloud account on the iPad. It just all of a sudden appeared on the device. And I was able to reverse engineer that database. I looked at the database tables individually, and I was able to conclusively prove that this was the date and time that these settings were changed on the device to allow and permit that data to get downloaded to the device. They're basically catching people in their lies. Yes. <laughs> How about electronic tracking? I feel like we've seen more about this lately in the news, but let's say that uh, someone, you know, puts a tracker in their soon-to-be ex-wife or ex-husband's vehicle. Um, is that like, is that the same thing as sort of like pinging off a cell tower or how do you track the tracker? So, <laughs> so those type of electronic tracking devices are, a little different. I don't particularly handle those. I typically send those um, individuals who suspect a tracking device on a vehicle or bugs being put in their homes to a private investigator who actually specializes in bug sweeps. Um, I'm a licensed private investigator in Texas as is required by Texas statute, uh, but I don't do those bug sweeps. Um, However, what we do find as far as electronic tracking is concerned is maybe spyware applications or key loggers that have been installed on computers to monitor a, a person's activity of what they're looking at and keystrokes and who they're chatting with and emails and things like that. So that's the type of electronic tracking I'm looking at. So is that typically utilized if someone believes their partner's looking at porn? Um, it could be used for a whole bunch of things, whether it's infidelity, pornography usage. Um, I guess like gambling addiction. Correct. It could be or drug addiction. Um, it could be for a number of things in, I mean, without that spouse knowing, my understanding is that it's not legal, um, but I'm not an attorney, so I can't make that 100%, but that's my understanding. Right. Um, but you can monitor children. You could put those key loggers and spyware applications to monitor children without informing them. So if they're under the age of 18, you can notify them, but you're supposed to notify any adult in the home that may use that computer, that the application is installed on that computer. Um, some spouses don't notify their spouse that they may have installed that. Right. And then I guess you do get into a gray area of whether that would even be admissible. But, you know, sometimes I would imagine the goal is just to have the knowledge, just, you know, if you suspect something to, to know that that is actually the case, whether you're going to leverage it in your, in your divorce argument or not. Um, tell well, us a little bit, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
I would still be careful with that because then you could be, my understanding is that you could still be held liable for committing some, if it's not a legal act by installing that software on a computer that you're not disclosing to the other adult in the home. But if you say you're going through a divorce and you want to see if your spouse has put something on the computer without telling you, then we can go look at the computer, do a forensic preservation of the computer, and then look through it to see if spyware has been installed and see if somebody is monitoring your activities or not. But I so don't it's really more about protection and uh, looking over your shoulder, the client's shoulder, than it is actually catching the other party in the act. Correct. Making sure that the other side ha- isn't spying on their spouse or your client without their, your client's knowledge. Okay. Gosh, there's, I mean, that just brings up so many additional thoughts that we don't really probably even have time for. Tell us a little bit about your mentoring activities. Um, I know that in particular, you focus on young women and and STEM programs. Can you um, offer a little bit more information about how you're bringing other young digital investigators along? Sure. So I actually um, am a graduate from Ursuline Academy of Dallas. I graduated from there in 2004 and I am still very much involved with the school. And so I actually um, offer a summer internship mentorship program for one or two rising seniors who are interested in the field. And so they get to come to the office every day and watch what we do, learn about things that they can um, find on devices, things that they may not have even thought about, um, and then potentially even go with me to a court hearing or two. Uh, Last summer, I actually had one student go with me to a trial that dealt with TikTok, and she got to sit in the entire trial and was just, her mind was completely blown before the end of the day. It was incredible, but I also go and speak. Um, I'm a guest lecturer at Ursuline for their forensic science class. And I do a whole workshop with the girls um, and actually have them analyze an iPhone 10 image. And that just has some test data on it. Doesn't have any client data. It was actually a test device I put data on. (laughs) And they were shocked to see what we could recover between TikTok and Facebook Messenger and Instagram and Snapchat. They couldn't believe I could recover messages from Snapchat. Well, because the idea with Snapchat is it disappears, right? That's the idea, but that doesn't mean everything is actually 100% gone right away. I could still recover things several days later. (laughs) Wow. From that device. So, um, it's, it's a lot of fun to see the girls get engaged and, and really take an interest in it. Um, I want to see more women become interested in in going into STEM fields because there is undoubtedly a, a very low percentage of women in, in these fields. Is it necessary to have the engineering background that you have to do your job? Um, it's not necessarily necessary. I highly recommend it because it's provided me with the skills to think critically and to think of why did this happen? How did it happen? Um, And being able to develop the sequence of events and then test the hypothesis. And if it does come out that way, 
okay, great. This is likely how it happened. If it doesn't, okay, what other situation can we test to see how this may have occurred? Um, and so I recommend to any of the students that go through my, my mentorship program in the summer, if you're interested in this, major in some form of engineering, you can do anything with an engineering degree, anything whatsoever. You could go into academia, you could go teach, you can actually work in engineering, you could go into IT. I know people who have done a slew of different things with an engineering degree. Um, and then if they want to specialize in digital forensics specifically, do a double major or do a minor in that or do a minor in criminal justice if you want to go the criminal justice route. But don't give up on the engineering. I think there are skills within an engineering degree that are critical that have helped me tremendously. How many do you see that a lot of digital forensics programs in universities? I didn't think of it as sort of a traditional course of study, but I realize if you're teaching forensics in high school, that there's a good chance there are majors out there. Um, there are majors out there. They're still relatively young and not that many programs that I'm aware of. At least when I was in college, it wasn't, to my knowledge, being um offered as a as a major of study or as an area of study. Um, so it really just depends on which area you want to go to. From what I've seen of available programs of study, the programs seem to be teaching more the tool instead of the underlying analysis of data, um, which is why I recommend girls or anybody for that matter, specifically get an engineering degree so you understand the underlying data, how the zeros and ones come into um, the data structures, how they're formed on the electrical level is incredible. And then from there, you can understand the data structures and then operating system levels and go on and understand it from there and be able to explain it because you understood it from the zeros and ones. That's fascinating. I mean, I feel like that could be a whole nother show just talking about, <laughs> well, all the different layers of it. And there's so many and, layers. You know, you and I are out of time and, and this may seem like a softball, like lob to you, but for people who are listening, who have young children, if you had, you know, young children, maybe just about to start getting interested in the opposite sex or dating or, you know, socializing, what would be your very strict social media rules? Um, social media, I would, I mean, I don't have children, so I can't say on what parents should do with, with children, but I would be monitoring them like a hawk. Um, and I would be reinforcing that if your children have mobile devices, you need to have a long, hard conversation with them about sexting and sending inappropriate photos to anyone um, because then they could be held liable for child porn likely. Because if they take photos of themselves or have photos of someone who's also a minor, technically they'd be in possession of child porn. And you don't really want to go down that road. <laughs> you could Absolutely. just- entire life. Yeah. Taking a stupid photo. Right. And, oh. and we know, I mean, 
we know that children can't think of all the repercussions, but even, you know, as a mom myself, it's hard to fathom how many layers of difficulty you can get into before you even get into the legal part of it. So lots of really good information. Grace, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. I know you've got mentees to to deal with and clients to service. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. Likewise. Take care. So my next guest is going to take us in a different direction. Um, She is a family lawyer herself. She's been in practice for more than 20 years. She also happens to be here in Texas. Jacqueline Roberson is a senior partner with Roberson Duran Law, and she specializes in navigating divorce, child support, child custody, adoption, and surrogacy. Um, Something that I'd like to mention from her bio, because I, I would like to circle back to it later, she actually took a sabbatical from her law practice to join the Bear County District Attorney's Office representing the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services in child abuse and neglect cases. So she really has another dimension to her practice than I think most family lawyers would. Uh, Jacqueline is really here today uh, to talk to us about how to be a good client to a family lawyer. And I love this concept because it's really kind of living on the uh, the proverb, it's not a proverb, but that expression, help me help you. Right. So if you're a good client to your family lawyer, you're not just making that person's day. You're doing a lot more for your own benefit than just sort of, you know, making the lawyer happy. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Ever since I saw you were doing this, I was like, I need to talk to her because this is great. People need stuff like this. People need this information. And, you know, you know, because you and I have talked before that in divorce lending, I hear people tell me about their situation and I'm only working on one piece of it. I mean, I try really hard to stay in my lane, but I see how the client treats me and how they treat you. And I am curious to know if you have come up with some suggestions on how to be a good client and and why that would benefit the person either seeking a divorce or dealing with some other aspect of family law. Of course. So I've been practicing family law for 20 years. I At this point, I've handled thousands of cases, thousands of court hearings. And one thing that I always think about is you're paying your lawyer. So this is an investment. It's an investment in your life, in your children, in your family. And so make that investment work for you, right? So, you know, I just think through the years of things that I see my clients do that are great, things that I see them do that are maybe not so great. And and really just kind of how do we focus on doing the great things so that you can have the best outcome in your divorce? Good. Awesome. I want to hear it. Can you make some suggestions? Either tell, you know, you can tell me however it's better formed in your mind, what to do or what not to do with your, you know, using your professional of choice. Yeah, of course. So I'll give you a little bit of both. So one thing that uh, 
I think clients should really try not to do is don't fight your attorney. And what I'm saying is, is of course, you need to have meaningful, meaningful discourse with your attorney. You need to be able to ask questions. You need to feel comfortable asking questions. Because I've seen attorneys be very nasty with their clients, be very condescending. And that's not good. That's not what we're here for. And that's not what you're paying us for. But at the same time, when your attorney is, is giving you advice and looking at your case, they're coming from their years of experience. And even if they've only been licensed like one year, they went to law school. They sat for the bar. They've been in court. So they still have knowledge and experience that they can pass on to you. So when your attorney is giving you advice and you don't like it because your friends have told you something different or your family members, you're just fighting your attorney. You're fighting the person you paid. You haven't paid your friends and your family and they don't know your experience. And chances are they're not lawyers themselves. So That's a good point. Um, yeah. So that's why I say follow your attorney's advice and don't, don't bicker with them. I had an attorney years ago tell me, don't fight with your clients. And I always remember that. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to give you suggestions, but we're not going to fight. Uh, you know, I, I think Grace, she, she talked so much about like technology and the ways that it can impact families, especially in divorce settings. And, and that's just, we're seeing that more and more. Uh, you know, another thing that I think clients can do to not only help their attorneys, but help themselves is once that divorce proceeding starts, be mindful of what you're putting online. Uh, if you are putting pictures of you and a new partner and you're still divorced in the process of the divorce and your spouse has filed for adultery, guess what? Those pictures might come in. Uh, you know, bad-mouthing the other parent, never a good idea, but especially online because everyone can see it. Um, and everything that you put online in a divorce setting, you it, it has to stay there. You can't put it online and then delete it because now it looks like you're uh, getting rid of evidence, which well, can be used against you in court. As Grace just said, even if you think you're deleting it, you may not actually be deleting it. So I think that your your suggestion of just be super careful about what you're doing during this process is a good one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, just, I like for people to be very mindful of what you are doing online. Maybe take a break. It, it's better to not post anything at all than to post something that you regret. Uh some other ways I think that clients can really help their attorneys is, and also save themselves some money is compiling information yourself. Uh, we'll have clients from time to time and we'll tell them, well, we need your bank statements for the past three years. And some people are not very tech savvy. And so they'll ask us, well, can you access them? Well, now you're asking us to go into your bank uh, account on, your, on the bank's website, log in and download this information. That's not safe for you. It's not safe for us. And the amount of time that we're spending on that, you'll be billed for it. And so if you can go, even if you have to ask like a friend or another family member, hey, can you help me download these bank statements? Call the bank. They'll send them to you. You're saving time. You're saving money because you're not billing us for those little things. Your attorneys, we're here for the big things. That's why I tell every client, we're here for the big things. But we can also help guide you to do the small things, not because we don't want to help you, but because it allows us to focus on your case 
and the bigger picture. So if you can compile deeds, uh, bank statements, credit card statements, retirement statements, if you can compile all of that and turn it over to your attorney, that's beautiful. We love that because now you've given us what we need and now we can review it, package it up nicely in a bow for a discovery or to present it in court as evidence. Um, so that's always really helpful. Uh, being responsive. Uh, so many times people will hire us and then it's almost like they disappear. Like you're trying <laughs> to call them. <laughs> you call them, text them, email them, and you can't get a hold of them. And then they pop up three weeks later and you're like, well, where have you been? Um, any divorce is a big investment in so many different ways. And so if you can be responsive with your attorney, that limits the amount of times they're having to call you, email you, reach out. And a lot of firms are billing you for all of that work. So, which is unproductive because if you're call, if they're calling you six times and you don't answer and they bill you for each of those times, well, now you've just paid to not answer the phone. So answer the phone, schedule a call, be responsive with your attorney. Um, and then on the flip side of that, be patient. Uh, a lot of times in divorce, there are, there are lag times. Like there's just times we're not doing anything, not because we're not working on your case or don't want to work on your case, but maybe we're waiting for the other side to turn over discovery requests. Or maybe we've set it for mediation and we're just getting ready to go to mediation. Calling and emailing and texting your attorney every day saying, what's new, what's new? Good attorneys will let you know what's new. They're not going to leave you hanging and you should be able to trust that. Now, if you have an attorney who never gets a hold of you, you're trying and calling them and they're not responsive, that's certainly a problem. But just having a little bit of patience, sometimes this process can take a long time. I've had divorces that have taken two months and then divorces that have taken three or four years. And so it's an exercise in patience. Um, and I think that's really hard for a lot of people. It's hard for the lawyers. But just being mindful of that as well would certainly help through the divorce process. Uh, some other things like, you know, I think a lot of people, what I'm seeing a lot of times now is people are very concerned about the uh, financial aspect of a divorce. They're concerned about the cost. They're concerned about paying a retainer to hire a lawyer and what that's going to look like. And I'm seeing people who are trying to represent themselves or they're getting assistance from non-attorneys who are pretty much just taking money from them because they don't have the expertise. Uh, what I would say is, yeah, you do have to be mindful that uh, legal representation does cost money. Um, and, and maybe sitting down with your lawyer and looking at ways to maybe, how do we streamline these costs? Like, what can I do to help you? What can, what can we do to move things along? Because I know it's, it's stressful. I know it's frustrating. And we're not sitting here just wanting to take all your money and run. We want to get your case done. We want to make sure that we can leave you in a position where you can move forward and you can heal. So also being open with your attorney about things and saying, hey, look, you know, my, my finances are running low. What can we do? What can we do to work together? A lot of attorneys are very receptive to that. It's about communication. If you communicate with your lawyer, that's always so helpful. We, we love to talk to our clients. We love to sit down and help our clients uh, figure out things, come up with solutions, because that's going to help us help you. Um, and then the big thing that my partner said, as I was talking to her about this, uh, take care of your mental and physical health. 
because it's going to impact your memory, your decision making. This is a divorce is one of the most stressful things you will ever go through. And when you're under a lot of stress, it's hard to remember things. It's hard to um, get certain tasks done. You're so overwhelmed. You're you feel like your your entire life is changing, and it is. Um, and so, if you can take care of your mental and physical health, you can be so much more helpful not only to your lawyer, not only to your family, but to yourself. So, doing things like don't be afraid to engage in therapy, do some individual counseling to really go through and process what's going on because it is a, a tremendous life change. Uh, you know, eating a healthful diet. Uh, you know, my partner says, go outside, walk, drink water. Even if you just do that for 10 minutes, just something that, you know, can help kind of re-energize you, get a lot of rest. Um, and there's also support groups out there. There's divorce coaches out there. There's all kinds of resources that can really uh, help you navigate this process. And don't be afraid to take advantage of that. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're male, female, however you identify, don't feel like you can't take care of yourself or that your predefined gender role keeps you from caring about your mental health. No, everybody needs that. And you're only going to be better for yourself and for your family. So those awesome. are kind of big things that I think um, really can kind of help a client help themselves and help their lawyer through their process. Okay. So a couple of things you said have really stuck out that I'd love to circle back to. Um, I, because I'm not a family lawyer, uh, sometimes my divorce lending clients complain to me about their family lawyer and they say, oh, she's too busy or, oh, there's, this is taking a long time. And something that I've noticed working with you and with other family lawyers that, you know, where I'm part of the team and not obviously driving the bus you work largely on word of mouth, do you not? Do you mean in terms of like referrals to our office? Yes, and positive reviews. Yeah, of course. Something you said about, you know, we want to help you. You you want to sit down and help your clients get a case resolved. I have really very few encounters with family lawyers where I get the sense that they're distracted or not paying attention. I think generally speaking, family lawyers are very compassionate. You want the best outcome for your clients. I think out of just your altruistic nature, if you want to help this family continue, you know, repair itself and continue in whatever form that's going to be. But also privately, in the back of your mind, you've also got to be thinking, hey, you know, I'd like to get a good review from this people. I mean, your livelihood, in essence, depends on the experiences that you provide. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, of course, we don't want to uh, be beholden to reviews and and worried about that. But um, Certainly, we want to put out uh, a good product, good work for our clients. Um, What I enjoy is seeing our clients down the road after they have finished the divorce process or the child custody battle and just seeing them thrive. Like I actually got an email today from a client who, a client I've always enjoyed and uh, his child just wrote their first book. And I'm like, wow, 
because I remember what all they went through in their case. And right. so just to see the child thriving and, and writing a book, I mean, that's just so impressive. And, and stuff like that, I'm like, okay, this is worth it. Like, I love this. You know? Yeah, that's very cool. I just, having observed this process so many times through the eyes, my own personal experience with divorce, but also through the eyes of my clients, I, I think your lawyer not only really wants to help you get the case resolved, but a lot of the delays that you talked about when you were, you know, saying that, oh, well, we're trying to get mediation set or we're waiting to hear from the other side. A lot of those delays are not really under your control, are they? No, they're really not. Um, you know, and when we do run into things like, for example, having to deal with uh, COVID, the pandemic, and that slowed a lot of things down. A lot of court policies and procedures changed drastically for us. And so, whereas whereas before you could get a, an order signed and get a copy very quickly, now, you know, you're waiting weeks because you filed the request and, and the clerk's office is overwhelmed. And so it takes time to get it back to you. Meanwhile, sometimes your clients think that you're not doing it and you're like, here's the proof that I sent the email three weeks ago or I filed this thing three weeks ago. Uh, You know, you'll reach out to um, opposing counsel. They might be busy as well. There may be other things going on between them and their attorney that you're their client that you're not aware of and you're waiting for a response and you're not getting a response. Um, I think being communicative with your clients and making sure they understand like, look, this is we are facing some delays. This is what's going on helps quite a bit um, for the client to really understand that you're not just sitting there not doing anything on their case. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, Something else that you said that I would love to talk more about, we have seen, I think, a rise in the popularity of divorce coaches, somebody who is not you know, involved in the actual legal process, but is familiar with the legal process and and also familiar with the emotional turmoil and brain fog that just accompanies something like this. So when we talk under the topic of how to be a good client to a family lawyer, do you see advantages to people involving other specialty partners in the divorce process to free you up to focus on the legal? I absolutely do. Um, especially with things like counseling, divorce coaching. Um, in our uh, in our own office, we provide a mediation coach. And his name's Leon Collins. And what he does is he helps the client get into the mindset of mediation. He's not there to help you come up with your first offer. But he's there to like really help the clients be prepared for the mediation process. And I will say that once we started using him, I have seen such an improvement in how our clients are in mediation, how open they are to the entire process. And you're not billing, you know, your attorney's not billing you for that. That's a private or a separate thing. And it's incredibly helpful. Uh, Just, yeah, any kind of third party, you know, you had Grace on and having her, hiring someone like her to be able to do some research for you. So you're not asking your attorney. So your attorney's not scouring Facebook, trying to pull things off of uh, somebody else's page. Uh, Having those third parties really can help your attorney. But I do understand like financially that can be tough for some people. And so, you know, sometimes you have to be creative, but definitely a big help if you can use it. 
I just think I've talked to so many people who hire a lawyer and think, okay, well, you know, that's all I'm doing. I'm going to hire a lawyer and then, you know, magically I'm going to be divorced. But I think that the mindset, or at least from my observations, has shifted a little bit to where maybe choose a couple of people who are going to play important roles and let each person do what they do best. Do you subscribe to that theory where, you know, you're driving the bus, you're the lawyer, you're working within the legal parameters that we have in this country. And there are other people and and me as the lender, you know, I like to come in and look at the real estate part of it. If there are questions, I would rather answer them and save the client the cost of, you know, if it's something that I can reasonably answer than having to go back to the lawyer and, and pay for more time. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. One thing that I think, you know, is so crucial in a lot of co-parenting relationships is bringing on a parenting facilitator, helping those two parents learn how to navigate this parenting process now that they're no longer living in the same household. And that can be a tremendous help as well, because your attorney is there for you, but this person is there for both of you and your child. Well, and it's entirely possible one of those parents may not have really been doing much parenting, but now that they're dividing into two households, suddenly that person's like, oh, shit, well, I better learn how to, you know, I mean, don't you think that legitimately happens? Like, wow, I need to get my dad skills going here. Yeah, I will definitely say in a lot of uh, marriages where there's children, there's often one parent who is the primary caregiver who knows everything for the child. And then the other parent who relies on that parent. And then now all of a sudden, that other parent's going to have to know where the child's dentist is, who's the child's teacher, how do you log on to the school's portal? All of a sudden, now they've got to do all that, all of those things as well. So yeah, somebody like a parenting facilitator can help with that process to help you learn how to parent now that you don't have, you can't rely on the other person in your home. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Both of you ladies, I I really would like to have you come back if you're open to it. Both of you brought up things that I feel like could be entirely separate shows. So thank you both so much for your willingness to be here. I know you're super busy, but I've really appreciated hearing from you. If you're listening today, don't forget, you can now download our planning workbook at planfordivorce.org. It's $25 to download an electronic version of the Plan for Divorce workbook. Until next time, have a great week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Plan for Divorce, Your Next Chapter with host Brooke Benson. We hope today's episode has given you a new perspective on divorce and food for thought as you make some important decisions. Until we talk again, hang in there. You are not alone.